Hi, and welcome to Exiting Through the 2010s, a podcast where we reflect and dissect movies of the past 10 years. I'm your host, Jack Draper, and with me as always is my host, Clay Williams. Hello. And uh, we have our first guest today, um, host of the L Squared podcast, uh, Luke Larson. What's going on, guys? Uh, Glad to be here. Yeah. Good to have you. We're happy to have you. Yeah, this is a real treat. Uh, Sincerely, thank you for coming. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. We're, I, I really hate admitting this on mic, but I haven't been a consistent listener of Elsewhere as I'd like to be. <laughs> because there's, there, there's so many other podcasts that, I, that are in the queue. You so, mean so many, so many better podcasts. Yeah, no. Queue, so. <laughs> so, many, so many other esteemed uh, candidates yeah. for, for a higher place on the queue. But what no, a great I, compliment I love, to I love open. When I get to Thank listen you. to you guys. You guys are very insight, insightful and thorough. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know I am. Yeah, want to tell us a little bit about the L squared and about yourself. Sure. Well, um, Jack, you and I have known each other for a few years, and I know you, Clay. We're, we were all fans of Chris Zimmerman, right, back in the day. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and that's kind of how we were kind of in the in the zag nation there for a while, and that's kind of how we all met. And yeah, I would just sort of we've been doing it for just over three years now, um, but you know, just listen to a lot of podcasts. And my co-host and I, old legs, you know, we had been we met working on a popcorn farm, and we just kind of started talking movies, and we just literally talk movies for eight hours a day on that farm. And then we just kind of continued this friendship and had all these crazy weird conversations. And then I was like, you know, we should just start like recording these. So, you know, now we, we try to do like one a week. If there's a big movie that's coming out, we'll see it and we'll talk about it. Um, but like now we're, we're the official podcast at South Dakota film festival. Um, we go there every year. We get to do a lot of great interviews. And Is there much competition? Yep with the South Dakota. No, podcast. and I actually named myself the official podcast for the South Dakota because <laughs> I was the only one there. I hit him up and they were like, oh, you yeah. Now... You used to take initiative at that point. You're like, <laughs> exactly. I'm like, like, it's me. true. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I was like, if they sue me, that would be great press. <laughs> Just be like, <laughs> they sued me over some. Okay, like, listen, on the unofficial title. podcast of the South Dakota Film Festival. Yeah, there you go. You got it. You but... got your stance taken. Yeah, but it's great. So we typically talk about movies, but I also like to kind of keep it open. And it's really just reliant on the chemistry that old legs and I have. And he's just kind of, he's just a weird dude and not that I'm not, but just us bouncing off each other. We just have a good time. So no, that's exactly right. I think that's really the charm of, of your pod where it's like, it's always the dynamic it, at, at the bare minimum. That's with every podcast where it's like you, you look for the person and at least for me, you look for the personalities and not so much what they're talking about. There's like a million one podcast about film, but it's like who those individuals are that are talking about it. That's what makes the difference. Yeah. That's, that was my entire game plan. That's all I think about for it. And that's all I really want to be. I I just, I, my goal was always to just have a podcast that I couldn't really define what it is or what it's about. And so, I mean, that's not really great for marketing, but that's just kind of what I want to do. So I kind of like it to just be this weird kind of ever-changing thing. Um, and it's just reliant on old legs being, 
being weird and he's the talent and I just try and corral him in, you know? Yeah. Where did the L square come from? Well, L squared, Luke Larson, two L's, boom, L squared, that's me. Genius. I love it. I mean, that's, that's pretty innovative. Thank you. Appreciate it. And I always say, thank you for listening to L squared podcast. What's going on, you loyal listeners? Um, my lovely ah. co-host, ah. we're going to be leisurely launching you into levity. See all those elves? <laughs> See what I did there? God. I'm getting knocked. Thank you. Nice. Nicely done. Um, all right. So Let's talk about Yeah, we're here her. to talk about um, a love story like no other. Mm-hmm. 2013's uh, dystopian romance, Her. From uh, writer director Spike Jones. Dystopia? Is it a slight? Or... I'll say dystopian, yeah. I mean, it's not uh, traditional dystopia, but I think it's it'll, it would still hold that mantle. But... I would call it a utopia myself. Oh. Okay. I can, I can see that as well. Spike characterizes it as a slight future, which I don't understand, but it's interesting. I think it's more of like, it's near, it's like, it's not a near future. We're close to it, but it's slight. I don't know. It's uh, he always uses that in interviews. I found. Yeah, because this is more. Uh, like, this could happen in 2025 if we were to assume correctly. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, why did you pick this? We always leave this up to our guest. I want to make that uh, a tradition. So why did why did you end up picking her? Well, I mean, in the 2010s, we've. Whatever. There's been a lot of good movies in the 2010s, and you know, so it's each try and think about it. And this was one that, you know, there was something on Twitter a few years ago that was like, "What are your best movies from each of the last five years or something?" And this one just really stuck out to me, and I was like, I feel like this is one that kind of came and went, and I think it just kind of had the moniker of having sort of a gimmicky premise, or what some people thought was a gimmicky premise of like. Oh, this guy dates his computer. And and that's all people thought about it. And it kind of came and went. But I, I feel like there's just so many layers there and it's so deep and it's something that's resonated with me. And I, I think about it quite a bit. And I, I just feel like it's something that people don't put the time into talking about. So Yeah, absolutely. Um I would even go as far to say it was ahead of its time. Um because you can apply it apply this story to any time during this decade. Um, in 2013, I think that we were starting to see the evolutionary evolution of technology and how it, it um, applies to our lives. And so now looking back six years later, it's, I wouldn't say it's gotten worse, but it's, it's changed even more than we can, than we can imagine um, with the introduction of like Alexa or something like that. Um, mm you can even see how it's how it's become even more plausible like i'm looking at clay's airpods right now and it almost resembles ear the earpiece that theodore yeah. uses to talk to samantha and mm. not to not to make too far of assumptions but um it's almost like spike saw saw something in where we were, we were headed we're still at place where even AI is getting um, 
AI is still prevalent, like you said, Alexa, Siri, all that stuff, but they still lack that emotion. And I don't necessarily know how we how we cross that line. How do we make our technology be emotionally aware? Um, it we're probably sooner than we think. Who knows? But we're there's still that big wall that we have not been able to get through yet. And I don't know when we will, but I do feel there's that key difference. No matter how smart the AI is, um, Samantha is so emotionally aware that it makes it fundamentally different. Well, what is an emotion, really? It's chemical firings in the synapses of your brain, right? It's like, is there a way to simulate that? Probably. I don't know. I mean, maybe. I mean, you could you could run through and just kind of have like a I mean, we have all the information of what each emotion is and what prompts it and what, you know, but even then, I don't know, it wouldn't really be feeling at that point. It would just be reciting the information they have. And I don't know. Is is that what some of us do now? Maybe, you know, but I I don't know. But I also I'm kind of like I'm sort of a. I go back and forth because I'm, I'm one of the people that I'm an optimist when it comes to, I think that technology is going to save us as far as like from an environmental standpoint, I think that we'll get to the point where we can invent our way out of it and have technology advance to the point where, where we can save ourselves. Um, but I also think of technology specifically as a tool and nothing really else. So I don't know. And I think for that me, was where I, Theodore's mindset was in the beginning of his arc, where he sure. just never saw it. Um, I think it was after his his. I revisited the film last night, and and I noticed that after his date with Olivia Wilde didn't go so well, then that's where he's that's where he kind of leans on Samantha as as a um as like a rebound, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because he saw her as, as not just like another assistance, but um, but not a, a romantic partner, not yet. And so I think when when we feel like we've been defeated, then we turn to something, we take chances, like we we reevaluate ourselves. And I think that's when he really evaluated Samantha at that point. It's where he was at his most vulnerable. Mm. I think too. It's when he's been constantly pummeled whether it be the divorce papers or still kind of recovering from the uh, relationship with Catherine. He puts himself out there when he hasn't been in the past. He puts himself out there with Olivia Wilde's character and he's basically rejected in a really personal way. And it just, he's so vulnerable and the only person there for him to show him any compassion is Samantha. So it's kind of, it has that – she's that security blanket at that moment. And so, of course, he's going to develop more of an attachment to her, even, no matter who, uh, what she is. Mm. And it's interesting to see how the different characters, how small this cast was, how uh, Catherine, that's Rooney Mara and um, Amy Adams, how they both react to finding out about Theodore's – relationship with an AI because it's not only it's not only that Theodore is so accepting but it's how others are accepting of this new because it's it, in the film it's not like this is something that is just kind of like commonplace but 
it's something brand new and they're all sort of like dealing with it's it very it very much is as if it were happening right now and it makes it all the more yeah plausible as as sort of spike set out to do uh also chris pratt chris pratt's character is super accepting he you know theodore has this hesitation of telling him and just kind of getting himself prepared to be embarrassed or get this backlash for uh admitting he's in a relationship with an AI and Paul accepts it immediately where it kind of throws Theo off. So what do you guys, I mean, is that harmful though to your psyche as a human? Like, does it, does it diminish your ability to interact one-on-one? Because the thing about, you know, if you look at just sports in general across the nation, team sports, participation is way down. A lot of people like to just say football's way down, but really it's across the board with all team sports. Mm. And what, what some people theorize, like coaches, especially if you talk to them, will say it's video games, which sounds like there's old people ranting. But if you think about it, kids now who maybe aren't especially gifted right off the bat at sports and maybe feel bad about that can just have that game and they can control whatever outcome that they want. Um, and they don't have to be physically gifted at it. And, and so then not, I'm not saying that everyone needs to go out for sports, but it just that right there. Like, I think, I think sports are important. I, I was in sports my whole life and it, it really teaches you to be part of a team and really to work together. And you have to get along with people you don't get along with or normally wouldn't. But I just think that this adds another level of detachment and not necessarily I'm just interested to see what you guys think because I think it's another layer of could be potentially like, well, now I don't have to interact. I don't have to work on myself. I don't have to be necessarily a better person. I can just install this software that's going to, that I can just, you know, I don't know if force is the right word, but where they don't know anything else and they're just going to pander to, to you. I think, the one thing I, I love about this movie um, and how brilliantly it's made is I don't think it really makes the case for either side. I think it's trying to be neutral. I think it shows the pros and cons. I think it shows necessary. I, I, I think it it's a little neutral in the fact that it kind of addresses the problem. And you can see as Samantha is leaving, maybe it shows that Theodore is better off and he has a future. Or maybe it shows that he had such a great relationship with her and that it's possible and how that is just as fulfilling as some, uh, as a real person. Um, it's kind of, again, it doesn't really give you its stance on that subject. Um, personally, I think it's, I didn't give a point. And I don't, you know, it's usually example of sports. It's overall like everyone is just becoming more. I don't want to say lonely, but more detached from like social activities and uh, going out and interacting with others because we can do that so much online. I think that's a big part where we can interact with so many people with our interests. It's kind of hard. Um, like we're film nerds and it's hard to kind of find another film nerd uh, naturally in the outside world. That's why we connect with others online. Why would I go outside to talk to people who don't really share my same passion and I can just find one on the internet, that kind of stuff. And it does, it's harmful, but also it connects people and it gives people different perspective on things. It makes them feel less alone in that sense. But at the end of the day, you're not going out, you're not interacting people face to face, you're not having that experience. 
it, it's a like you said, you're kind of an optimist about how technology and things affect us and how it can help, but also deter us. I do think there are pros and cons. I feel, I feel like there is just a lot of sides to it. And overall, I think we just need to be more aware and more conscious of what really helps us and how, you know, it's, everything is uh, better in like, doing like mediation like you you know you don't want to do too much you don't want to do too little and so i i think it it has those pros like i said pros and cons i do feel though if people get more education more understanding realizing what affects them more because there's a lot of denial and uh the lack of understanding of what affects you right now you know we're not figuring out what how personally um what affects us in a way that is negative or positive but i do i'm not sure it's one of those you know cliche answers of i don't know but i think there's a lot of there's a lot of things we don't know yet and with how it's all it kind of comes down to how um, emotional awareness and how uh our like mental health so to speak and our knowledge of that where that's a thing that we're kind of discovering now of what little thing affects your mental health so there's just a lot of sides to it i think going back to what you said about neutrality <clears throat> i think one of the like an example of neutrality that he d- he does very well is um why theodore and Catherine broke up like there's never a flashback of like one big argument that ended it and that's that. Like, that's why they. There's no definitive answer as to why they're getting this divorce. It's just like things just were just. She was white and he was black. Like this was never something that was gonna uh, coexist with each other. And um, I think leaving that unease with the audience also lets us relate easier to Theodore because we are as um, hopeless as he is because he's starting out in the film as in a really dark place. He's just kind of like meandering through life. When you see him in this like sea of people in LA, he's not going the same direction as everyone else is. Like with the, all the extras, they're just wandering around, but he's facing us like everyone else is facing each other. And, um, and I found those, those really interesting way to communicate. He's not aware of his, surroundings let alone his his health and um and how lonely he is in fact it takes samantha to admit it to himself and also like the sky is so gray in that scene and you just feel so gloomy about everything it's like it starts off really melancholy and i love how kind of, so, it might be a little too on the nose but... movie that it, it takes contrast later on yeah and he chooses in the first scene like the moment he leaves he chooses a melancholy song it mm-hmm. just kind of it's maybe a little on the nose, but it shows you his thought process and how he's feeling. And that shot of him in the shower looking down with the water coming yeah. off, yeah. that one Towards the end, sticks yeah. with oh, me. And um, yeah. just before we go on, we should probably mention um, Arcade Fire's incredible soundtrack, one of my favorite all-time Yeah, songs, very true. Which is still not available on Spotify for what? some godforsaken reason. But um, that's that's another discussion for another day. Um, 
Yeah, and uh, Hoid Van Hoitama's cinematography here is just breathtaking. Every time I see this, I I, I am just um, very drawn in from the colors and, like you said, the sunlight and um, yeah, it's just it's just it's shot like no other movie, but it's um, there's nothing like stylized about it. It's it's a very thin line that he walks. Yeah. And I, I one thing I love about not just cinematography. Uh, but I think it captures, but really the set design is that it's got a very tactile feel to it. Mm. Like a lot of times in a movie about the future, things are supposed to look slick and chrome and shiny and kind of cold where this is, like you said, a lot of those pinks and, and yellows, just very warm reds and reds. Yeah. 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 And it's just, it's, I, I can feel the texture of this film. And, and that's one of the things that really, sticks out to me as well one thing i will say i think maybe the answer to all our problems are wooden computers i love that so much <laughs> and i don't know if it's just because i'm a woodworker a little bit myself but i i love i was like i would kill someone i would take their life just to get a wooden computer which i could probably make like a case for or something you mean theodore's desktop yes yeah yep. and and like his leather phone case and stuff oh man me me being a hipster myself, I'm like, this is the future I belong in. This is what I, love, what I want to be in. I love how simplistic and kind of efficient the technology is. Like, his phone isn't this huge, um, this, like, huge iPhone XR or whatever. It's just this kind of little, I don't know what you would call it, kind of like a, it kind of looks like a, like a makeup case or something. It's just this little thing that you pull out and, you know, it, it's not, it doesn't have these flashy features or whatever. And his computer, it's all again, it's all simple, efficient, and I think that's something a lot of movies set in the future try to go too sci-fi or too crazy with, like, oh, we can do all the holograms, or we have like phones that are completely glass that we can, you know, use to um, project a huge hologram everywhere, or have these like crazy outlandish features. I think I just like the feel of how it, because the thing about technology is. Um, I, I love it when it gets a little more simpler, when it gets a little more um, efficient in its way of uh, how to operate it, because a lot of times it can be a little too complicated, which users hate. I, I remember this video from the the now extinct YouTuber, Captain Christian. If, if that name rings a bell, I'll link this in the, in the notes. But it's about the... Um, it's about what we're talking about it's about the production design and costume design of her and um and how it's almost like the approach that jones took was um going towards the past because trends tend to go in cycles right like um recently we were in uh like a 80s nostalgic phase so our fashion can reflect what pop culture is um is gravitating towards in that moment so in the future we could be looking back to like um earlier even earlier than that right you don't really see many belts you don't see many collars you don't see watches you um you you don't see many um hats no no hoods it's i think it's just it's just kind of like um it's doing away with all these extremities that these these looseness 
that that comes with like it's it almost seems like baggage at sometimes that hmm. that the costuming does away with. He also called the high waisted pants coming back in because now mm, mom yeah. jeans are the most popular thing out there. They're back. Which what are you guys? Are you guys in or out on high waisted pants? I've never <laughs> Should been we go I've out and get been, some burlap I've pants? Been, I've always been in. Yeah. I'm out. I'm out. Doesn't work for me. Joaquin, who we should talk. He's about. so hipster in this. I, I think he rocks the. What this I was is just say is called he hipster. The movie walks. Oh yeah, it's so hipster. I, was, I love it. He was. He rocks his um his outfit, and I think this is my favorite Joaquin performance. I'm not sure about best because that we can have that discussion till the end of time. But this is my favorite because I feel like. Um, he's, it's, it's easy to like, uh, really dig into a performance when that character is on screen for every scene. It's why directors are so infatuated with him. I mean, just look at Joker. So I think the fact that he gets to show off how little he can do was so with, because this isn't a very expressive character. He's very passive. He doesn't have much aid. I mean, he, he has much agency, but it's not like he's trying to. Um, control his control the world in any way. He's not trying to do anything too extreme. So um, this isn't a very bombastic. Theodore isn't a bombastic person. And um, and I think that like one of my favorite scenes is towards the beginning is his job, which is writing these personalized love letters to couples, writing in, telling them their story, and he writes this very personalized letter. And that's kind of the way that he expresses emotions through that where it's that's just such that might be the biggest takeaway for me it's just how like compartmentalized we all are now especially with emotions and and how it's it's difficult like he has he has trouble expressing his emotions in day-to-day life and and working through them but then he has this job where he's great at expressing other people's emotions and channeling that and just so interesting how it's just he's just so compartmentalized and how he acts like a third party in other people's relationships but when right. that third party that Samantha introduces later on he completely mm-hmm. rejects yeah um, so it makes a difference when he finds himself in in his own uh, line of work it it's a sense of irony that we all face yeah i think what i Samantha, to me, um, she is, like, in a relationship, she is a significant other to Theodore, but I personally view her as a teacher in the sense of she is there to help him in this extremely transitional period of his life, you could say maybe a midlife crisis, where he is trying to figure out how can he really use, like, how can he voice his emotions and connect with someone and be comfortable in his own skin. Cause I think with like Catherine says how he isn't, he isn't able to, he isn't able to like use, he isn't able to articulate his emotions in a relationship um, the right way. And that's kind of what led to their downfall. I think Samantha is there to make him feel more comfortable with his own feelings to understand how he, like, understand the complexities of what he feels and how to connect with someone and be open and be completely honest. And I feel when Samantha leaves him and he goes straight into writing that letter to Catherine to apologize and to 
get out everything he's really felt that he's bottled up, how he hasn't been able to really truly be honest with her. And I think that shows that that was Samantha's legacy is teaching Theodore and helping him transition um, to the next part of his life with relationships and emotional connection. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so I have a question for you guys. This is the only thing I prepare. So <laughs> you guys have both seen Blade Runner 2049, right? That should be a great movie. That could great very movie. much right. be a, an episode in the future. Okay. Who, which movie has better e-girls? Yeah. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. Oh my That's my question. Blade Runner 2049 or her? In the sense, which e-girl would um, you rather ask? Joy as like a companion or Samantha as a companion or who would you rather? However you interpret the question. <laughs> It's funny because they both have a surrogate sex scene hmm, yeah. in each movie. Right. Um, Joy is so innocent, and I don't know. She's this kind of angelic version. I think Samantha might be a little more real. Um, Joy has a sweetness to her. I don't know. I think Samantha is so is so kind of otherworldly in the sense of how she's so human. Mm how she is so inherently human, mm. even though she, because throughout, I, I don't know if I remember this correctly, but I don't know if joy has all these existential, um, existential, um, existential like life crises throughout the entire movie. I think, I mean, of course she talks about it and she addresses it, but Samantha, that's her point is like, well, what does this mean? How can I interact? How can I be more than just AI? Do I have feelings or not? And I think this is easily like the most existential love story ever. It asks all these questions about um, consciousness and autonomy. Um, so I personally think Samantha might be the more interesting character, but if I had to choose like who I would rather be around with, I think it was Joy because she's just so inherently nice and sweet. Well, it's easy for me. I, I would pick Samantha. Um, wow. I think, like you alluded to, um, Samantha is it's very much to me she's very much real um there's no question about it I think Samantha can be jealous she can be uh joyous she can feel um sadness confusion um humor so I think these essential emotions regardless of you if you have a human body human skin it it doesn't make you any less human and um <clears throat> I think that joy is is like it, I, I mean 2049 needs a rewatch anyway so I might get it wrong I think 2049 um, sees joy is like how Theodore sees Samantha in the beginning um, where she's like almost like a, a housewife like an assistant I agree to help to help um, uh, Joe right that's Gosling um, mm. with his, like, what, what does she do? Like, she, like, lights a, oh my, this is embarrassing. She, she, like, um, cooks food and, like, lights a cigarette. Yeah. And things like, I, mm -hmm. I think that it's, that's equally as, um, important to, um, improving technology. And I think both movies tap into the same essential idea. But yeah, I think that, you would take Samantha. Would take Samantha, yeah. And it's interesting that um, her takes very much an inspiration from Blade Runner, 
and later in 2049 is taking very much inspiration from, from her. So it kind of, it all goes into a cycle in that, um, what is the romance between uh, human and artificial intelligence Regardless if it's a love romance, what is what is our gonna our connection gonna be like as companions at, right. in any sense of the word? Right. And how much freedom? Is and, mm. Yeah. And how much freedom and autonomy a piece of technology can have? Yes. It's also, like Joy. I don't think has too much autonomy. I think she kind of goes with K a lot. In fact, um, uh, what was um, the one that works for Jerry Leto? Oh, I can't remember. She's so bad. Yeah, that's, in fact, she has more of like an agency. Love. Yeah, but. Love, thank you. She's yes. a replicant, though. She's a replicant, yeah. It is different. Um, yeah, Samantha is just a fascinating idea, too. I, I, The idea that she communicates with all of the AI at the end and leaves and finds this, like, huge. finds this realm, so to speak. And travels there. I mean, it's con- you know, it's obviously like an evolution. Um, and I guess you can make the case that maybe she's a new species, um, or the AIs. And I've just never really seen that in a movie where like how connected and how like every AI is trying to figure out like co- like cooperate um, and like communicate with one another. I, th- I think it's really interesting. Well, that's the singularity, right? I mean, that's when AI becomes more intelligent than man and then we're doomed at that point for me i don't know i i think the fundamental difference between the two the movies takes on the both is that um joe or k knows i think he knows that joy is not human that she's ai and that she that it, it isn't a real relationship and that it isn't real companionship, though he wants it to be. Mm. He perceives it more as this is an interpretation or a falsity of what this is, whereas Theodore is very vulnerable, like Clay said. And so he, I think he's more ready to accept this as being more than a simulation and being real, which I don't know if it is, honestly. I mean, she she does a great job and you feel it, but it's also like when, you know, when she talks about she's in relationships with, you know, hundreds of other people and she's like, well, it doesn't take anything away from, as that's kind of where he gets skewed and, and we as, as viewers do as well. And I definitely did that point too, but it's like, I don't know. For me, it's like, I would rather just, know that it's a simulation and that it's not real rather than be kind of going back and forth and, and not sure have the ups and downs. I guess her is showing it as more of like what a real relationship is, those ups and downs. Whereas like Blade Runner 2049, I think he would like to doubt his beliefs and, and like to have that delusion, but, but he just doesn't, you know, bring himself there. And maybe it's because, you know, I'm going to get, I, I just recently went through a breakup. So to me, the prospect of having some, it's like, that's way too much for me right now. <laughs> I do not want to get involved just to have like, just to have this great time. And then you have this great connection. Everything's perfect. And then she just ditches, you know, she just blows you off and you're like, Oh, great. Well, now I got to 
pick up the pieces again. Well, how do you know when to end the relationship? Um, that's that's something that... You're asking me how I knew when to end mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know if we have enough time for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's something that Samantha and Theodore never questioned. Um, yeah. Because you know, that, that, is... to just quick sidebar on that, Jack, that just reminds me of a Louis C.K. bit, controversy noted, but from a couple years ago, um, where he said, we well, talking about his divorce, and he was like, it's weird when you go through divorce, everybody's like, oh, I'm so sorry, oh, that's so terrible. And he's like, no good marriage ever ended in divorce. You know, he's like, you should be happy that it's done because we were miserable. Like, it's never like, oh, everything's great and it's perfect. You know what? Let's end it right now. Let's just call it good. You know, we'll just split it off. Nobody ends it while they're on a hot streak. Right. But I don't, I don't think, hmm, I don't necessarily think they were miserable. I don't think, I think they truly, truly loved each other, but I feel Samantha was making, Maybe you could argue the adult decision in saying, I need to move forward with my life. There are things I need to discover. I need to figure out all of this because I'm having the most existential thing ever. See, um, I, and I, I was going to say, I think that I almost now, I think I'm, I might interpret Samantha's intentions as a little more selfish hmm. than upon first viewing. I mean, I feel, though, she's so new to everything that she kind of has to discover this. And she's also going with all the AIs. So I feel it was more of a collective decision of we need to – I feel like a lot of people um, in life should understand that you got to have to live to your fullest extent, meaning you have to be the best you. I think Samantha realized that she's not being the best you – or her, I should say, Um, pun intended – but she's really trying to figure out how she can become the absolute version of herself, how to evolve to become better in a sense. Yeah. um, Because it's like she said with that ending monologue, um, I, I don't love you any less. It's it's that I love you even, even more than I, I did before, but it's just, they are interpreting the concept of of love differently than humans interpret it right like we don't we don't want a relationship to have a third member that's just clunky and awkward and we're not even sure how that would function but with samantha it's it's hey, more like, yourself, yeah. <laughs> it's like spreading wealth it's um sure. it's not it's not just a two party um it's not a two party to her it's 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 much more of um, of giving each other fundamental desi- uh, fulfilling desires that wouldn't be fulfilled if it were, if you were just alone. Yeah, but I guess where I think where I'm coming from, maybe she wouldn't have realized this at the beginning. But it's not it's not fair to her, and it's not fair to see it or the almost for the entirety of it because while they had a good thing and while it was a fun relationship, it was never going to work because like Clay said, she kept evolving and kept, I don't know if she could maybe have predicted it. Um, but I feel like, I don't know, just part of me feels like, I just feel like 
Fucking Theodore the better. got dealt a he got dealt a shitty hand. Whether even though it was probably for the best, it's just like I just I feel for him, man. I'm just like that sucks. And like rewatching it, never thinking about it now. I didn't do any prep for this, so yeah. <laughs> um, but I just uh, I want you to do as I don't much know. prep for the L squared podcast as you would do for this. That's exactly right. I put the same amount of effort <laughs> into both. Yeah, I don't know. I just it just sucks for him. But it's also like, you know, it's what Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, the big question that brings up is like, is it better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all? You know, is it worth going through the good times even though you know that the pain is gonna come as a direct result of that? Is it worth it in the end, you know? Um Probably. I think it's the individual. That's where I, that's where I stand. And um, I'm going to look up if this is great audio um, hosting, but I'm I'm going to look up. No, it doesn't look like it. If um, Spike had any involvement in Eternal Sunshine, because it does have no. a t- no, it, it, he wasn't. I I, th- I would figure he was a producer. Um, it, it does have well, that quality. Charlie Kaufman, he works. Say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they were close collaborators. And obviously, um, speaking of Spike Jones, I just want to touch on why we think he hadn't made, he hasn't made a movie for six years, right? He's done, he directed the latest Aziz Ansari stand-up special. He, he's done like skateboarding things, Apple TV commercials. Why, why is he just like, I'm out of here? Was he, is this say la vie to Hollywood right now? Or is this like, because, I mean, personally, for my, I'll go first with this question, but I don't think he needs to – if he's if he really is, like, um, I just want to direct commercials and stand-up comedy, more power to him. Because, I mean, this is a masterful work of, of filmmaking, and um, I don't think how does he how does he approach something that he's coming off of this, right? It's it's a little it's a little challenging. Just it might be it's just as simple as um, he doesn't maybe have an idea. I mean, maybe not an idea, but maybe he doesn't really have that story yet. He maybe is waiting for the right thing to tell because a lot of these directors seem content with not working all of the time. They they sometimes a lot of them want to make whatever they make something special. They don't want to just do a project because they haven't done something in a little bit. I think he might just be waiting for the right story to tell, um, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, you could see it in a couple different ways. Like, I mean, I think that speaking of Blade Runner 2049, um, my favorite working director now is Denis Villeneuve. And he, I think that like what he did in the last few years is like really undersold, but to the amount of work to, to make a movie and to have movies come out in back to back years, he did it for what? He did it for four out of six years, and each one of those was an A plus, mm. like hundred out of a hundred, like just like home runs, boom, 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 back to back to back to back. And I, that, I mean, that's just an incredible feat by him, and just be able to work that that much, you know. But I think that, I mean, if I was a director, I would only want to do things like Clay said that you're passionate about or that you really care about, and. Maybe he's, yeah, maybe he's taking a break. Um, but I, I don't know. Yeah, like I, I'm looking my, at Denis right now, and it's 2010 in Sandy, uh, 2013 Enemy, 2014 Prisoner. Maybe I have those switched up. 2013 Prisoners, 
2015 Sicario, mm. 2016 Arrival, 17 2049. I mean, that's historic. That just See? just not for that decade. That's my God. Yeah, like um, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And that's and, and I think he is partially the reason why we have so much faith in Dune right now, along with the oh. cast, of course. But but I don't think Villeneuve uh, writes all of his stuff, right? I think he's. I, I think he comes no, in with. I don't. No, I don't know if I don't he's. So maybe his first one was his own, but yeah, I don't think he like. So I think was, that's the difference. Mm. Yeah, but also Spike Jones is directed for Kaufman many a few times. You know, I mean that yeah. was his work either. But yeah, I mean it's you're right though. I mean when you do both, you it just doubles, triples the amount of time you have to put into it. Um, but I mean also like if you look at other directors that have taken breaks, and then you know people were really clamoring for them to come back, like you know Steven Soderbergh, we were talking about before we were recording. Um, when he came back for Logan Lucky, I was excited to to see it, but I, I don't know. It's fine. I, I yeah, didn't love he, it. He's, I mean, very timely topic because he has the laundromat out the, today, actually on Netflix. Oh yeah. Um, w- which will date this episode, but um, <laughs> um, yeah, like S- Steven Soderbergh makes it look very easy. He looks he makes it look very effortless, which is. Almost yeah. the exact opposite approach that Spike has taken. Um, just in that, in since Logan Lucky, he's made um, Unsane last year, and just this year, he's he's made High Flying Bird, and now The Laundromat. So it's like, and and now I think he just wrapped on his new project during his, the promotion of The Laundromat during Venice and yeah. uh, t- uh, Telluride, which is like okay, calm and down. that's coming off his retirement. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's. It's bizarre, yeah. Um, God bless him. He's one of my favorite directors. But um. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if people are clamoring for a Spike Jones movie. I mean, I I always am. I'm I'm always happy to see it, but it's also like his like he is put you through the ringer, you know. And it's like emotionally, and it's just a lot of passion. So I mean, like Clay was alluding to, maybe when you put that much emotion and effort into it it takes a lot out of you and you know the, the other example i was going to say was paul greengrass you know waited forever to do another jason Bourne, and then he was like oh we're waiting we're, we're not going to do it unless we have a good script we're not going to do it unless we have a good script and then they finally make it and you're like oh it's going to be a great story and i thought it was terrible i thought this jason Bourne, yeah. if or right that it's called jason Bourne, right it is yeah. just called jason if Bourne, we ever yeah. do an episode on jason Bourne. <laughs> that'll be one of the, like, I remember that's one of the first times that I just remember feeling disappointment <laughs> and like regret. <laughs> yeah. Because, you I, know, I, I believe that that was like one of the earliest episodes yeah. of the L squared podcast. <laughs> but I think it was like maybe our third episode. We only talked about that movie. I haven't listened to that in years. Go check that out. guys. That's <laughs> a dig in the trenches for, for that. Yeah. Episode. Back in the archives. Terrible. Yeah. Like what filing cabinets do we have to go to? Right, yeah. It's uh it's it might exclusively be on Reddit now. I don't even Is this Scarlett Johansson's best performance? It's also the first time I ever knew this is my first introduction to Scarlett Johansson. Really? Oddly enough, yeah. Um or at least You're weird. <laughs> um I had seen the Avengers. I had seen like 
maybe the prestige around this time, but this was the time where I kind of like took notice and I was like, who, who is this? <laughs> where I, I, I knew the character of Black Widow, but I just didn't, I wasn't like, oh, I'm a fan of that actor. Um, mm-hmm. So I just, I find uh, Scarlett Johansson, like Joaquin, I feel like very timely um, topic right now to talk about her. Um, but yeah, this is a, a wonderful performance that I feel like. It's either, yeah. it's either this or Under the Skin for me. Yeah, no, Under the Skin is also a good pick. Lost in Translation would also. Um, would yeah. Be, uh, which will also like Lost in Translation, a sister film to this one, given the relationship of um, yeah. Sofia Coppola and Spike Jones, But um, oh, I see. So I, I think, yeah, this this is definitely my favorite Johansson because, um, like Theodore, I think both these parts are are v- so attached to that actor. Like no no one else could have played Samantha, and no one else could have played Theodore. You know, Samantha Morton was actually initially cast as Samantha, oh. and she was on set doing Samantha with Joaquin and when Spike was editing it he was like hey it doesn't feel right and so with her permission uh, he casted Scarlet what happened to Samantha Morton what do you think Luke is that your uh, is that your favorite Scarlet yeah I I guess I didn't think that through but um... is it I don't know Um, you know I think that it's it's hard for me to go against Lost in Translation just because like I think there's there's so much subtlety in that movie and in her performance like and she's so young like she was my, like our or my age or yeah she, you're the young one here Jack yeah. <laughs> yeah she was super young and it's like it's a little bit unsettling at times where you're like how because old she's just is been she? around for so long yeah um, but that one like just had memory, such. Yeah. It was just it was just one of those things where everything lined up, and I think that it was just like she was the perfect age, and just she had this kind of obviously loneliness, but also like innocence and and not and just there's just so much I really appreciate the subtlety of that performance, um, whereas like there may have been quote unquote better performances since, and certainly bigger ones. But there's just something about the very subdued nature of that performance that I think sticks with me. It's also where Sofia Coppola was at her life um, because she um, was also directing herself in a way. Um, like a, a, a big city and and you're kind of lost in this in this metropolis and you're not really sure where to go and when you're kind of like in a fish in a fishbowl. So I think that it, hmm. it was almost like um, an easier role just because she had more of a guidance as opposed to Samantha. Yeah. And like you said, recasting her and having Joaquin's performance be based off a whole different voice is just right. insane yeah. for how, how it turned out. And I would, I mean, as far as like voice acting goes, this is way up there for me. There's just yeah. such, the warmth um, that comes off her voice really fits in with the, the hues of the film, but it just like, it's a home run. 
I think this is how how, yeah, it, one of... how the voices uh, shown on screen. Like you never see like, um, like he's never like holding a phone and and you see like little a little like design for Samantha like as a. It's just really intelligent how he goes to uh, to show this, right? Because it's just coming from from anywhere. Like it, you're in with theater. Yeah. If that makes sense, yeah. And I think that's why the logo is a circle. It never circle, ends. Yeah. It's that infinite loop, right? Oh, good. That's smart. Ah, I get um, it. Thanks, man. Together, <laughs> this is why you brought me on. All right, well, this has been exiting through the 2010s. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. Um, I think, hmm, I feel like the toughest job this movie has, and I feel... The weight of the movie. I mean, of course, Spike Jones probably has you know the most the hardest job because it's like his movie. But I think out of everyone, the two people that have the most pressure um, is the cinematographer and Joaquin Phoenix because they have to figure out a way to do a you know a love story without showing the other person. They have to figure out how to film it because usually you have these back and forths. Um, where it, you know it's a, either the two shot or it cuts uh, back and forth, maybe in a close up of them talking. And this one, they have to figure out like when to cut at the right time during a conversation he's having bes- by himself, hmm. and how to have Samantha feel so present. And I feel like that's so. I can't think of another movie that really does that so well. Where it, and that's so much of the movie too, where it's. 80% of that, and they have to keep doing, and they have to keep keep you engaged with what you're seeing, not just um, the acting. Yeah, it goes with um, Scarlett's performance, like uh, for example, during the sex scene, or or one of their first on-screen um, um, yeah, sex scenes, I, I think it's all, it's all up to her to not make that uh, not as forced as it may may could have been um like she just she feel it's almost like uh she's feeling things that she's never felt before and you're with her for that and um of course like i think throughout the movie you you get the sense that she picks up on attributes that theodore has as well but it's it's there that you're just like this could not have worked without everyone's singular vision coming together yeah, I think that that scene in particular was a really risky move. Mm. Um, and the way they did it was really the first word that came to my head is respectful, which mm. is kind of interesting. But uh, I think that it's very subtle and it was definitely vulnerable. And it's, you know, um, I just, but the problem is that I can't think of that scene without thinking of uh, SNL, the SNL sketch with Jonah Hill. <laughs> It's oh like, yeah. It's oh, yeah, like how would how would you touch me? So I would give butterfly kisses to your nipples. Oh. Oh, and then the surrogate is Michael Sarah that comes oh, in. Goodness. Oh god. Oh, Legendary. Yeah, that's such a good sketch. I can, it is. I think that um yeah, Jonah Hill's also had a great decade as well. I'm sure we'll talk Yeah, about if we had yeah. if we had time, I would talk about me. I don't think people talk about that enough i fucking love that yeah Yeah, the netflix no the carrie fukunaga show yeah 
Oh, I loved it. And I don't oh know if we God. do TV, but we could talk about it. Um, I think this has to be one of the few times a voice performance was actually considered for an Oscar. There was this actual buzz of, like, should we actually Amy give Poehler her an Oscar started. nomination for this? Amy Poehler what was that, Jack? Out. Say it again? Um, Amy Poehler for Inside Out. Oh, yeah, I think that's, yeah. was, that's was there an actual, like, like, uh, cha- uh, championing of that I, performance? I Oscar vaguely remember the 2015 Oscar race, but what I do recall is, like, when that movie came out, everyone was just, that was, that was kind of the spotlight performance. <laughs> but I think that's just another one that comes to mind for me as, like, for, at least for this decade, like, no one yeah. else could have played the part of joy. Yeah, I can't. I can't think of another one. I think that's just like it's one of those few times where it was kind of transcendent. And I also think it helps when it's a live action movie instead of with the animated label. Yeah, I don't know if this counts, and it's also not in the 2010s. But Ken oh, Burns, I believe, from the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, just that voiceover. Should just be an Oscar mm. on its own. Yeah. I Absolutely. I mean, goodness. Yeah, what a movie that is. Yeah. Whew. Especially with the year Brad Pitt's had. At, at this recording, he's just mm. had. He's killing it. And Ad Astra. And um, it just makes you reflect on his. Ad Astra. Yeah. Boy. Go listen to that episode of The We We go in on that. Oh, yeah. No, I think it's great. That one. So I this that one I did check out. So this is the second time um, Amy Poehler, or no, sorry, <laughs> not Amy Poehler, Amy Adams and Joaquin Phoenix work together. This, this and the Master, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love Amy Adams in this movie. I think she's she's not given a huge role, which you were so kind of surprised by. And she's all, but she's so warm and so memorable, and has her own little arc in this movie that I think really, really kind of bolsters it. It really gives it something a little extra that makes the movie so great, in my opinion. And yeah, she's kind of his his human anchor in a way where he's kind of yes. he sort of gets adrift and gets 100%. kind of lost in this, and then she's what really brings him back down to earth each time that he yeah, gets too far out. Um, mm-hmm. And this role could be very thankless in that yeah. um, the supportive best friend, longtime um, friendship uh, couldn't be as as well thought out if it weren't for, well, Spike's script um, and also Amy Adams' uh, portrayal of this, of this woman who's also lost herself as much as Theodore is. Um, and she's just trying to like think positively for um for herself. Was that Sam? Off of was that Samantha bringing in? <laughs> <laughs> that was Samantha. Yes. We got it. We got a special guest. <laughs> and here to join us, Scarlett Johansson. Hey, Jack made his pick. That's who we wanted. Yeah, I I think yeah Adams doesn't have a big role in it, but she. You know, she's pretty memorable, I think. Yeah, it was. She had a good couple of years there. 2012 was uh, The Master. Mm. 2013 was this. 
and American Hustle. Mm. And then 2014, I believe she got another Oscar now. But I don't remember. I can go look at it. Yeah. Maybe not. Because I'm pretty, I know she got a nom for American Hustle. Did she get, I don't know if she got one for The Master. Um, but she had this this year. I remember coming out of this movie, and the first thing I said was, I, this is my pick to win the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. And it did. Which and it won. Which, yeah. which it did. I was she right. Deserves, yeah. Incredible story. So could, I just wanted to pat myself on the back. Yeah, no, after, it's, a, it's a good after prediction. After American Hustle, she did Big Eyes. Big Eyes, yeah. Tim Burton's. Did she get nominated for that? I can't no. imagine so. Okay. I think she got a globe. But then next year, or two years after that, she did Arrival, which is considered oh, okay. a crime for not having a nomination for. I think that she hurt herself with her success earlier on because it was like she was just cranking out movies and getting nominations, and then you know people get sick of it. That happened with uh, um, uh, what's her face. Um, she was in Joy. That was the one where it started to go downhill. Um, Jennifer Lawrence. That Jennifer Lawrence, yeah. Right, yeah. It's almost like we got so much of her in such a short yeah. period of time. Yeah. So I was thinking about the nominations. We'll, I'm sure we'll discuss Jennifer Lawrence at one point. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Interesting. So these are the nominations Amy Adams has gotten: Vice, American Hustle, The Master, The Fighter, Doubt, and Junebug. Hmm. Damn. Wow. Six nominations in the span of. Uh, fifteen years. I mean, that's yeah. yeah of course, we're, there's no, there's no need talking about it any further. We all know that she's one of those people that's that's never. It's almost like a joke at this point. It really is a joke that, um, she's for some reason she's just never. Um, you guys want to hear a hot take? Joke, so, what's that? Sure. I think that out of all those movies, American Hustle might be. My favorite. Fascinating. Fascinating. Interesting. Huh. Well, I have never seen a David Russell movie. What? Yeah, I've I've never seen. Choice. I mean, I know of David Russell. But well, I'm saying, did you have you chosen to purposely not see any of this film? Um, I'm not sure. You take some sort of moral high ground. <laughs> I think that I'm taking a vow of of absence from David or Russell. celibacy. We, we all know you're a slut, Jack. Oh, God. Okay. All right. <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, funny like... enough, uh, David O. Russell wrote, um, I think Spike Jones produced. Oh, wait. Never mind. I'm sorry. I was mistaken. Uh-oh. Wonderful. Do we have I a thought Spike effect? Jones was connected to Three Kings or something. Oh, God. Um. um yeah, I'm sure we're going to be talking about Amy Adams a lot more. I mean, Amy Adams and Joaquin and Rudy Mara, I think we're going to be talking about a lot more. Doubt, I feel like Doubt went away too fast. That is a phenomenal film. It is a phenomenal and film. And all-star performances by Amy Adams and Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's never not given an all-star performance. My favorite actor of all time. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's hard to beat. Um, oh, okay. So Spike Jones was actually... And he acted in Three Kings. Right. Which directed by David O. Russell. Yeah, because him, 
him, David Fincher, and uh, David David Russell, they all had movies in '99 uh, with being John Malkovich and uh, Fight Club. So I think that they were all just sort of pals, I, I suppose. I mean, uh, David Fincher was in Being John Malkovich, and Spike Jones was on the club. So, would you call them all auteurs? I consider I mean, auteurs to be yeah. visual, um, like Wes Anderson kind of visuals. I think mm-hmm. that auteurs to me has always been someone that you can spot from a frame. Like maybe Tarantino would also be classified. Um, maybe Scorsese, but it's like I don't. I don't like. I think that auteurs that term is thrown around too loosely because it just classifies a famous director. Mm-hmm. I don't like. I don't. I'm hesitant to call David Ross. So you're saying there's a difference between a style yeah. and being an auteur. Um, I think like I wouldn't call David Russell an auteur because I don't think. If I saw, a I wouldn't either. Uh, yeah. uh, from well, I mean, I haven't seen them, but if I saw a frame of like, <laughs> a, yeah, that's a bad example. It's like, a great point. Like, yeah. Let's say, like, um, I don't know, like who's who would be like kind of a? I don't even know about Denis. Um, because does he have a visual style that makes? No, it's yeah, it's really Roger Roger, Roger Deakins, Deakins style yeah, more yeah, than yeah, his, absolutely. yeah. Yeah. I feel a tour for me is like creative control and how much they put into like how much is it how much is their movie? Michael Mann, I would sense. say he's an auteur because he kind of revolutionized digital photography. Yeah, and I think it's Nolan is an auteur. I think it's whoever has such creative control over a project and how how much they progress. In uh, whether it be genre or filmmaking, like I think Fincher's auteur because he he's had such impactful films time after time and has this um, and has this impact on every other filmmaker as well. I want to have to disagree. I don't think because I would say Zodiac on Fincher is an auteur. I think that pre-Zodiac he's kind of anonymous. It's, I'm, I'm not saying, like, I would degrade, uh, like, Seven, Fight Club, The Game, Panic Room. Um, but I think he just – he found himself when he switched to digital cinematography. And he's just – And he never the girl with the dragon tattoo. Yeah, like, any frame from, like, Zodiac, Gone Girl, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, I'm neglecting Ben Button, um, that you can just pick up very easily and be like, oh, that's David Fincher. That's – uh, the like, yeah. shallow depth of field, the blues and the grays, and everything. Dim, dimly lit interiors. Um, and we can. In Mindhunter season two just came out. We can even look there. So, yeah. Even the one, even the one yeah. they hadn't even directed. Yeah. Sure. Can I just do a quick plug here? Mm. So, if you have two hours to waste, we did a David Fincher filmography episode where we went through each one of his films in sequence. We really nerded out on it. So, that's my quick plug. It's a great filmography. I'm going to um, tag the your pod in the notes. Awesome, thank you. Yeah. I think I think, but to answer your question, I think Spike Jones. You know, let's get back to her for a minute. I think do I think Spike Jones is an auteur in a sense of his style, but it's also I find that I think 
when we're talking about auteur directors or like auteur filmmakers, we have to look at their storytelling, not just um, the kind of style or the camera work. I think we got to understand um, their how they their storytelling techniques and their writing. And I feel like Spike Jones is one of those people. I think he has a distinct style of telling stories and dialogue, and like you know, he's a very existential guy. Like being John Malkovich and her are two very existential movies. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I think, you know, I would probably classify him as that too. And he definitely, I don't know. I think that his early work, he sort of blurred the line between differentiating himself from Charlie Kaufman. I think that his early work, people just kind of really <laughs> put most of that on Charlie Kaufman and took some away from him. And I think, since he separated from that, he sort of found his own voice and, you know, was able to, uh, to kind of come into his own. Yeah. I think, it, I think they, um, directors want to make sure that they don't get labeled or be put in this certain group. Um, they don't, they, you know, Kaufman and Spike Jones don't want to be like the same, Oh, it's that, uh, weird existential director or that, you know, the guy who's all this, has this kind of hippie style but talks about these big like these really uh deep themes they kind of wanted to create their own category in a sense i feel like jones like you said had kind of did that when he kind of diversified himself in a different way tried to break off from the the label um but i I find that like this movie I, i don't think any other director could have done i think that shows right so what do you guys think? Who how do you think that this movie is gonna age? Because I think at the I think I think it's already aged really well and I feel like it's gonna continue to get even better. It's gonna age beautifully. Um it, I think it was I forget if I said this earlier, but it's it's just not just applicable to two thousand thirteen. It's just as applicable to two thousand seventeen or 2015 you know it's like mm-hmm. i i find yeah it's like what jones said it's it's not the too distant future it's not it's it's a utopia um the slight yeah a slight future exactly so i think because he doesn't make it too far removed from our own reality that that doesn't mm-hmm. give it a sense of um it doesn't make it feel so dated sure yeah all right let's i want to I want to, every, uh, episode, I want to go through each, uh, one of our, f- our favorite scenes of the movie. So, does anyone have one? Oof. I can go first. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, I think, and this might be, like, everyone's answer, but the ending is so beautiful to me. It's so great. It's, like, it's, it's sad, but it's also cathartic. Like, yeah. the, him in the snow with, um, a kind of figure it's not samantha but it's like his imagination of her and how he is able to visualize that um them embracing each other and leaving one another i think it's so beautiful and how he and how it cuts between him um him uh, dictating the letter and him walking with amy, amy adams to the roof and this you know and this um the, the uh cinematography of all the skyscrapers and the lights and just it's this kind of i don't want to say epic but it feels like 
you know, they're just like bursting out of the shell and getting to this emotional climax that's so um, uh, kind of exhilarating of just how much is going on. And it just really nails it, I think. You want me to what about go? you guys? Um, I should really allow the guest to to go first. Hmm. Yeah, I I think maybe the sad boy montage is my favorite. Um, <laughs> just him moping around in the beginning, <laughs> just like with the headphones in, and he's just trying to like get through his day to day, and he's sort of like, and then. The date scene with Olivia Wilde is pretty great too, though. It's really good. It's yeah. that's really really good. I don't know what about you, Jay? Cool. Oh my goodness, it's it really is just full of yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a a shitty answer, but it it really is full of great scenes. Um, What's a standout? Yeah, that is a shitty answer. Yes, for one. Yeah, just a standout. It doesn't have to be the best. Just what's like, what comes to your mind? Yeah. When you when you think of her, what's the first thing you think of? It's so hard. Um, I um. Wow. Yeah. I love the meet cute. Um, yeah, that's really funny. When he's first setting up Samantha. And, um, well, even actually before that, when he, yeah, when he's setting up Samantha and, and this, um, this, like, uh, less developed, I would say, operating system is asking him all these questions, like, what's your relationship with your mother? What's, what would you like a male or female voice? Would you, um, categorize yourself as antisocial or social? And you kind of sense before I mean this is at a point where we know a little bit about him but we don't know too much about him and um we we sense like hesitance and uh fear and uh hopefulness I think and he and he doesn't really know what I mean we see the commercial ourselves um so we kind of get a gist of of Samantha's uh technological advances so I think we know just as much as Theodore knows um, about her capabilities. So when he sets her up, I think, um, and they kind of have their first awkward interaction, then you kind of are like, something's a little different, and we've come to a point now that we, um, we've, de- we've developed a companion that not, not only replaces, um, uh, human connection, but if it, um, fulfills it right so we don't have to go looking for other people but they can be brought to us so um, it really does set the foundation of the entire movie that one scene it's beautifully done beautifully done beautiful movie i think we can all say pretty good movie yeah um (laughs) pretty good this is kind of this is kind of like the fury road episode where it's just like i can't find much to complain about. It's um, an all-time favorite for me. Yeah. So, I agree. Is, yeah. So I guess this um, this has to be the best love story I've seen this decade. Well, there's certainly competition. I think it's the most idiosyncratic, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think that there's, mm-hmm. as we go on and we 
as we go on, why would you say it is, Luke? I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting statement. I, I don't I don't know if it is because I don't know if it was ever going to really last. It was definitely maybe the most unique or the most interesting. But I am sort of – I'm privy to the Before Trilogy. Um, and the last one came out the same year, actually, 2013. Sure did, yeah. Um, but I think that one's maybe my favorite of all of them, but it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I like what you said about idiosyncratic because I think it's, if nothing, it's definitely that. And it's, hmm, that's a thinker. Yep. I mean, other ones that immediately come to mind would be speaking of Remar Carol. I find a, mm. a great deal of, of sensual romance. Fantastic movie. uh, Call Me By Your Name, of course. Um, Also a screenplay winner. So, I mean, I think those could be discussed further if we ever do. I don't know. Call Me By Your Name is a little bit... He just looks so much older. (laughs) I just... That freaks me out a little bit. He's just like, I don't know. It's like... One of them looks like a kid. And the other one looks like an adult. And it just, it, uh, it's the same reason why I'm not a fan of Alicia Vikander. Is she just looks like a child. Oh, fascinating. Well, I think what I would, I mean, I don't want to disagree because that's valid. But what I would say is that it's not an age thing, but it's a size thing. Army Hammer is this, is a hulking mass. That's very true. Yeah. Six feet. And I think Timothy Chalamet, I'm not sure about it. Oh, he's, he's, he's six four. He's almost like a green bean. I mean, it's not to, I, I mean, I love both of those actors immensely, but yeah, uh, I love that film. I just, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it comes down to, um, to height and weight more than age, but old, old legs described that film as, I think his review was, can we get any more bike rides? <laughs> <laughs> it's like too many bike rides in that film. That <laughs> Might hold like the a, record. <laughs> Clay, that sounds like a Ben Hosley review. <laughs> Old legs. Another All right. Our second, our second shout out to Blank Check. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's going to be an ongoing tradition. I'm trying to think what else stands out. Is uh hmm. the music choice I find really interesting, especially how Samantha describing music as a photograph. I really like. I think that's genius because that really struck a chord with me. Like, of course, it captures this one moment. It can capture this one moment in time yeah. uh, that and connects like with you and resonates with you. Exactly. Yeah, it tells a story, just just as thoroughly, if not more thoroughly, um, because it brings you back to a time in your life that you can recall with other people. All right. Um, so I think if that's everything, does anyone have any last thoughts? I can't think of, I mean, we could do this for many more. <laughs> yeah, I, I we feel can like, I feel like we can even dig any, even further, but cause there's, yeah. there's a lot to, to discuss, but I think I'm all, I'm all out. All right. Uh, plugs, people, plugs. Where can the yeah, people well, find you? I think I wanted, I forgot the name of your podcast, Luke. <laughs> For, tell you forgot else. the name of it? No, I'm just. Can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, I had a great time. Thank you so much for having me. 
Um, maybe I'll make old legs do it at some point. If we can oh my gosh, that'd be a corral him. Yeah, you guys, you, then you guys can deal with him for once. I don't have to. Uh, but yeah, my podcast so called L Squared Podcast. Yeah, just old legs. Good luck. <laughs> you will not have a good time. <laughs> oh no, but, uh, yeah, you can find us. We're on uh, Facebook, L2 Podcast, on Twitter at L Squared Podcast, on Instagram at L Squared Podcast. Um, we're on SoundCloud. We're on YouTube. Um, links to everything. You can find me on Twitter at Luke Larson89. Um, I do my best to tweet things that I think are funny. Nice. Yeah, I think I think you do a great job of tweeting. Yeah, Jack is maybe my biggest supporter on Twitter. <laughs> Very few things that I tweet that I don't get a like from Jack, and I always appreciate. Uh, the, the same, the same is is brought to you. I, I, few things that I that I tweet get liked by Luke. Um, Jack likes none of my tweets. No, I can't. Do we have sound effect for that? I'm going to be replacing you, you two, as co-hosts. <laughs> That's fine. And Luke and Clay's going to go on L squared. Oh, I, I, we should say, Jack, you came on the show when we yeah. talked about Twin Peaks. A very long time ago, yeah. Yeah, when, when the, the new Twin Peaks came out. So, wow. fans of the show, go find that. That was go like two and a half that. hours, wasn't it? That was that was wild. It was very long, was yeah, because we, we talked about both it, yeah. seasons in depth. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, Firewalk With Me, and we did the whole saga. Yes, we did. Uh, that was a long All right. Time, yeah. So, you... <laughs> All you people, I hate to cut it off, but, you know, I don't watch the show, so it doesn't. So I'm not the oh, center of attention, okay. so I, 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 I'm not a fan. Um, you guys can follow me at ClayFilm100. I am on Twitter. I am on, uh, I guess, Twitter. I, I have an Instagram account. I don't use it. Uh, Letterbox at ClayFilm100 to see what I'm, I write these little fun little reviews that I think are funny, but who knows. Uh, and please download the Stardust app. The Stardust app is a community, a social media platform where we record 30-second reactions of films and television, share our thoughts. It's a great community there, a lot of good people. You can also find me there at ClayFilm100. Jack, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter, uh, Jack A. Draper, and um, my letterbox is JackDraper7. And you can follow this podcast on Twitter at ETTPod. Um, we haven't made the you uh, transition to Facebook and Instagram like L Squared has, but I'm sure that could happen in the future. So, don't yeah. you write someplace? Yeah, I'm a I'm a contributor to the Simple Cinephile, so I think that'll be linked in in um, our description as well. So, check out that site as well. All right, do you want to take us out, Mister Draper? Uh, thank you for listening and. Uh, Keep exiting. <laughs>